Good morning, everybody. I'm so excited to teach you this lesson. Um, God's been teaching me. Um, I, I, here's a whiteboard. I'm going to use it as an illustration, and here is a disclaimer. This ain't Pastor Jeff. <laughs> I have one picture for you today, and that's, and that's the one I'm going to draw because um, I get to teach the Book of Wisdom. And when Chris and Rhonda and I were um, arm wrestling over who got to teach the books, I won with the Book of Wisdom because I am wisdom. <laughs> Thanks be to God, he is wisdom, and he imparts his wisdom, and I get to stand in his wisdom. And one of the things that um, our author, not Mary Jo Sharp, but Mary Jean Young, I wish they didn't have the same names as last time, but what Mary Jean Young taught us, is, asks us to do, is to open our hearts to the wisdom of, of the Lord before we begin even our daily lesson. And in an effort to do that, and I need um, practice things, I need something to make me do something, a discipline of some kind, I've, I've drawn a picture, and I'm going to show it to you. And I use her scripture there, open my eyes that I might see the wonderful truths of your law. So every time I want to say that, I want to know that, I want to feel it, and I'm a kinesthetic learner, which means I move around a lot, um, if any of you were you know, cheerleaders, you might be kinesthetic learners. If you were a gymnast, you might be a kinesthetic learner. If you do sign language the way I do, you might be a kinesthetic learner. And so in doing so, I like to move when I, well, I don't like to move. I can't help but move, okay? Sorry. I tripped over that court this morning. It's just all grace all the time. But anyway, so this is what I do before I start. Um, open my eyes that I might see the wonderful truths of your law. Okay. Open my eyes that I might see the wonderful truths of your law. And this kind of looks like a balancing scale, so I think of the law. Okay? I say it every time. It's written all over my book. It's very obnoxious. It's super ugly. It works for me. What works for you? You know, I'm moving, I'm writing, I'm drawing, I'm making a visual, I'm making an auditory. This is about five kinds of learning. So there it is. That's the soul use of my artistic talents for the day. All right. I'm very excited to teach the Book of Wisdom, like I said, because um, uh, being wise is, is um, a joy and a goal of my life, but it belongs to Christ, and he is imparting it to us. And I just want to, you know, give you this disclaimer. Um, um, as I come to stand before you, I, I don't have the theology degree of Chris or the teaching experience or wisdom or master's degrees of Rhonda. All I got is what you're looking at. But this is the verse that the Lord gave me um, many years ago when I was stuck in my um, insecurity about, about being in a position like this. He gave me Isaiah 54, which says, the Lord has given me an instructed tongue, or the tongue of a teacher, so that I might encourage the weary. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to listen. Listen as one who is being taught. This is my verse, and this is what I bring you. And this morning, he awakened my ears to listen again. I went back to my computer and wrote down a whole bunch more stuff. So I have to hurry. But uh, I just want to say that uh, that which he has given to me in Isaiah 54, he has given to you in Isaiah 54. And morning by morning, he is ready with the wisdom you need to be taught and to give a word to the weary who might need some encouragement. So that's what we're about today, encouragement. All right, we're going to talk about two specific wisdom psalms, um, Psalm 37 and Psalm 91. Those are the ones we studied this week. 
And the wisdom psalms are written um, rather in the manner of the Proverbs. And who doesn't like a proverb? You know, a nagging wife is like a leaking something or whatever. Um, who doesn't like a proverb? A proverb is a, a bit of wisdom imparted to you in uh, what my, my son would say um, in a fortune cookie. I have a lot of bits of wisdom I like to impart to people who haven't asked for it. And so I wrap them in a, you know, in a fortune cookie. And he always says, I'm, that's another fortune cookie, mom, he'll say to me. So anyway, God is giving us this wisdom in sound bites. These are not necessarily co connected by a storyline or a plot or even a circumstance or a place in history, although they might reference that. And uh, Psalm 37, we uh, um, give credit to uh, David for writing. Psalm 91 is an unknown author, probably written to David. But all, all of these wisdom psalms are to demonstrate two things to us. And they are our praise of the God who gives us the wisdom, and we praise him for it, and a training in righteousness for those who might be reading about it. And they can be musical or literary or poetic or metaphorical, loosely grouped together. Now, nobody loves a metaphor more than me. A picture story in words or a picture story says a lot. So I'm going to give you the best metaphor I ever bought at a silent auction. Um, we're going to go one ahead. And that is my experience in trapeze lessons. Are you ready for this? All right. You're just going to watch. Oh, I think we're going to watch. Here we go. I was a kinesthetic learner. All right. So um, here I am at age 50-something or other um, buying a, an auction item of, uh, of trapeze lessons. And I go with my girlfriend, who's braver than I, and we're both scared out of our minds. Because we, we go to the gym, and we see a 30-foot rope ladder and people flipping around upon it. And we think, surely, this is not our 90-minute lesson. Our 90-minute lesson is over here at the baby trapeze. And so we're like, oh, at least we don't have to go up there. Our baby trapeze is over here. And we went to the baby trapeze for one little minute, which was to say, here's how heavy the trapeze is. Can you feel it? Now climb a ladder. So unfortunately, there was a whiteboard when we came in, and we all signed in. And my name was at the top because we were the earliest. It was a rare moment. I was actually early for something. I'm not Rhonda O'Brien for that either. But anyway, wrote my name on the top. And I, that meant for every um, uh, pass-through of lesson, it was sequential over the 90 minutes, I was the first one to hit the platform. And the first thing I had to do was hit that ladder. And I'm telling you, it wiggles. They make it look really good on Cirque du Soleil. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it wiggles, it, it, it moves around, it, uh, it's tall. There's nothing on either side except a lot of people saying, you can do that, go ahead and do that. So you get to the top of the platform, and there's a, a, a coach up there, and she hooks you up. You've been hooked up with a belt, as you can see. And there's a coach up there, and she says, lean over the platform and reach for the trapeze. Oh, no. <laughs> Lean over the platform so your body is in midair and reach for the trapeze. And uh, I didn't want to. <laughs> but lucky for me, she had a hold of the ropes that are tied to the belt 
that are attached to the pulley that's attached to a strong man on the ground that's going to keep me from dying in my 90-minute trapeze lesson. And I can see it all, including the net, but it still doesn't give me much comfort, to be perfectly honest with you. And one of my greatest fears was, in addition to you know, hurting myself, was, and maybe even greater, was feeling like a fool. Because I don't know what that's going to be like. I have no muscle memory for this except for some from a really long time ago. And it was never on a trapeze except in my backyard. And so um, I, I don't know how this is going to feel. This is 100% risk for me with a crowd watching. Okay? And so in doing this, I had to learn to trust a lot of things around me. I had to learn to trust the apparatus, the insurance policy. <laughs> Uh, the disclaimers from the company, and of course, the woman on the platform with me, the stability of the platform, um, the guy on the ground, the strength of his arms, the strength of the ropes, the, the efficiency of his instruction, and the little boy who was coming across on the other uh, trapeze who weighed about 13 pounds. <laughs> he was a cheerleader in every sense of the word, and he was going to catch all of this. <laughs> And um, every step up that ladder, I honestly could have thrown up. Every, every time I got to the platform, I was in utter terror. Even though I could count all those things around me, I really was in utter terror. It, and it wasn't until I did that, and I was like, Phew, okay, I could do that again. You know? And I've actually been tempted to sign up again for advanced courses, but it, it doesn't necessarily fit my schedule, but otherwise I would. Uh, but, uh, but because um, I built some trust over the course of those six efforts up on the platform, trust in all of that, the people, and even in my own ability, and even in my own ability uh, to sustain feeling foolish, um, which I'm showing you this now. I mean, it isn't like I'm a supermodel. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, my knees don't bend. It took me two turns to get the knees up over the bar, the whole thing. There were people who could really do this well, and I could have brought you their video, but they're not here, so they didn't win. But I'm just saying, for, for a word picture, this word picture of trust is huge in my life in that situation. It's, it's, it's written on the pages of our book, but it's not your life. Did you, raise your hand if you've had a trapeze lesson, or you're, have you. And are you considering going on into advanced lessons? Okay, you and I then, baby. So this lesson is only for my friend. <laughs> and the rest of you can listen in. No. Uh, morning by morning, the, the Lord awakens my ear to listen as one who's being taught. I, I, I assume that there's a word of encouragement in this lesson for you, metaphorically speaking. And here's one of the things I discovered. You know, um, trust is exercised not in the absence of trouble, but in the probability of it. In other words, it's easy to trust that my car is going to get me here today and that you're going to be nice to me the building's going to be lighted, and um, everything's going to work out relatively well in the end. It's more difficult to trust when there are some really hard things. And there are really hard things. I know there are really hard things in your life. There are really hard things that you're looking at. I'm in a particular place where um, the Lord gave me the notion of trust, and he has got trust written all over these two psalms. Given me the notion of trust that I need to I need to work on it, and unfortunately, trust is a companion to risk. And um, so, when you don't know what's next, that's when you have to practice trust. So, let's go on. Let's not do that again. Once is good enough for that. All right. 
So here's what I say. This is my trust top five. Now, how many of you have ever caught a baby in a pool like this, jumping off the edge and into your arms? And what are the sorts of things you're saying? Give me some. Raise your hand, throw it out, whatever. What are you saying to this child? I'll catch you. You can do it. Anything else? Jump, jump. I'm here for you. Who is I in this case? Likely. She looks good. I'm jealous of her. That's grandma? Man, all right, Grandma's fine. She can get on that trapeze. I thought it was a young mother who had very few stretch marks, but okay, Grandma. All right, you're, she, so she's, she's, she's giving a lot of instruction. She's giving guidance, right? She's giving guidance, okay. That's what I had at the trapeze, guidance. That's, that's what I had. You, here's, here's where to go. Here's how to get up. Here's what to do. Here's when to jump. Here's exactly when to do it. I don't know if you could hear the coach, but he was saying, okay, now, let go. Knees up. Okay, now. Everything. Every step of the way, guidance. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. Then you have the testimony of others. This is a very um, strong thing. If, if somebody on the platform or who had come before you, if I wasn't the first, said, yeah, it wasn't that bad, you could do this, that would have power over you. And likely this child has looked around the pool and seen other people jump in. And they've said, you can do this, right? So you have some good testimony. You have some personal eyewitness. Maybe he's been watching people. I was watching people do trapeze. I was you know, personal eyewitness, that'll boost your confidence, right? I saw it happen. I know it's possible. I saw it getting done. Here's a number two, personal experience. Oh, I did it last week, I did it before, I did it last year. Stacy and I are going to do it again because we did it last year. Um, we have some personal experience. Our, we even have some, maybe some muscle memory about that risk being worth it. But there's nothing, there's nothing more valuable than this little piece right here, established relationship. Because when I know who's catching me, I'm way more willing to jump. Can I get an amen? If I know who I'm recommending for a job is a person of worthy character, my testimony about that established relationship has high value, way higher value, enough value to put that resume at the top of a list. It means somebody should trust in that person because of my testimony about it. But my own, my own established relationship with the corporation, I student taught here, you watched me, I like what we did here, you see how I work, that has a lot of value. So these are the top, top five trust growers that I'm seeing. They are not on your sheet. I can see you writing them down, and that's a good thing because we're going to refer to them later. So here is, my, um, here is my working definition of trust. And this is based on uh, the verses in uh, Psalm 37 and 91, some of which we'll uh, see here in just a minute. You can, you can decide whether this is a good working definition for you. I've, I've um, present tense action based on past tense faith for a future tense hope. Present tense action based on past tense faith and a future tense hope. Most often, unless referred to in a will, trust is a verb. It's an action word. Faith is a noun and hope is a noun. It's like the two sides of the cliffs we looked at in that picture earlier. We have our feet are faith. At some point, we've established ourselves in the place of faith. We've said yes to the, to the God who said yes to us. We've established ourselves in faith. And hope is where, where that ends up eventually. But in the middle is the walk of trust, where we have to say, because I believe you, Lord Jesus, I'll take another step. 
or I'll step in this direction instead of that direction. That's a walk of trust. So trust is the verb. It's the present tense action of a past tense relationship and a future tense hope, all of which are elements of faith. Now this is just a working definition for me because I wanted to understand what's the difference between trust and faith? What's the difference between trust and confidence? What's the difference between hope and faith? And for me, I can see it this way. I can see my word picture. Faith is that which God gave me and I, and I received. And hope is where it ends up because of that. And, and my walk in the meantime is a walk of trust. It's a walk in faith, but it's a walk of trust. So sometimes it's easy. When the bridge between the two parts of your life, the known and the unknown, looks like this, nice and solid, you can say to the Lord, my refuge, my God, my fortress, in whom I trust. Easy to say. True? Absolutely. Look at that pathway. It's beautiful. It's fortified. It's clear. Very little trouble getting from here to there. Now, there are people who are afraid of bridges. I'm not one of them or can't pass over water. I'm not one of them. This doesn't scare me at all. In fact, it's quite inviting for me to trust the Lord for the next phase of my life in a picture like that. But when it begins to look like this, <laughs> a bridge over a much deeper chasm which much mo with much more unknowns, with a much less steady passageway, with a longer journey, I have to say this, because he holds fast to me in love, I, w I, have to, I have to believe this, that he says this to me, because he holds fast to me in love, I will be delivered by him. Holding fast along those handrails is really important here. I can't imagine I'd try any tricks on there, hands-free tricks. So this is a, a longer test of your faith. Faith grows best in a test. Longer test of your faith. But we can say, he gave me his hands and his handrails and his path and his purpose. And because he holds fast to me, I will hold fast to him and he will deliver me. I believe it's Psalm 91.14. And that's good from afar, especially if the person on the bridge is not me. But what if this is your perspective? What if your perspective is small planks along a long chasm with sharper edges and a deeper drop and an unknown in which you're not even sure you have a handrail or if the handrail, the handrail is invisible to you. Now this is a walk of trust. And this is where we have to claim a really strong promise that isn't obvious. Psalm 37, 23 and 24, the Lord delights in a man's way. He makes his steps firm. And though he stumble, he will not fall for the Lord upholds him with his hand. What kind of a promise is this in difficulty? <clears throat> and thankfully for the wisdom of our author, David, and those who serve David, we can meditate on these promises. We can awaken our ears to listen as one who's being taught because we're going to need this information because life is promised trouble. Psalm 37 is a teaching psalm. I love to use the words put before me, but um, um, pedagogical, pedagogical or didactic. It is of the teaching realm. It is meant to be a lesson, so the commentaries tell us. And it is arranged in an orderly way to demonstrate order. 
It uses its form and function to visibly teach you about the form and function of God. He is an orderly God, and there is cause and effect. There is a, a, a consequence to the action, and he teaches us this in this orderly psalm. And it is an acrostic, which is just plain fun, which means there are letters at the front of all the stanzas, or in most cases, couplets of stanzas, that cast it off into a direction, like those Mother's Day cards your kids give you. M, Mom. Mom is my favorite, you know. Oh, orderly. <laughs> no, I don't remember what they told me. I should go back and look at that. Probably something good. Okay, so it's an acrostic that way, and it goes from A to roughly the end of the Hebrew alphabet. And the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Bet. And it sounds a little bit like a word we just said, alphabet. So this is an alphabetical psalm. So at the front, so our author is poetic and creative, and he draws pictures when he wants to make communicate an image, and he's giving you a picture. God is orderly. Things happen according to a plan, and it's predictable. And he's telling us this. Okay, he teaches with this. This is meant to teach us. There are trainings. There's a lot of teaching in here about good and evil, righteous and unrighteous, those that should and, and those that shouldn't. And what happens when they do? This is a very good teaching for us, very elemental teaching. The, the, the wicked will not prosper, prosper, the righteous will. This is a lesson that's all replete through here. Hard to believe sometimes, isn't it, in, in present day, when the, when the rungs on your bridge are a foot apart over a chasm? Hard to believe that. But he's telling us, no, that's true. Keep walking along the path. It's a tried and true path. I'm going to tell you it's true. He's teaching us. And he uses a lot of poetic uses of land references in this particular passage. Um, I don't know. I'm not putting that up for you. There we go. Poetic uses of land references. So we have land mentioned about five times. I think I counted about 12 or 13 geographical references. Land, pasture, dwelling place, references to things on the geography, trees and grass. There's, there's a lot of metaphorical references to the land. That's his word picture for us. And he's saying, like in the 23rd Psalm, there's a green pasture for you. There's a green pasture for you. There will be, listen, wait for it, there's a green pasture for you. It's coming. It's a dwelling place. It's where you're going to dwell and thrive and prosper. He uses lots of land references like that. And it may be that he needed to say some of those things because he wanted them to be true for the temple. He wanted, David, to create that dwelling place for God to live, ultimately. Didn't get that job done in his life, but he wanted that. He, his view was for a piece of land where God would dwell and we would dwell with him. So they may be metaphorical. They may be important to him personally, the way my trapeze class was important to me personally, but it definitely gave a storyline for God to follow in, 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 um, in his life and thereby in ours. But there's a lot of this, too. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Delayed gratification is highly unpopular, especially now. We really don't have to wait for almost anything, do we? Uh, so difficult then, maybe more difficult now, based on our comparisons, our everyday comparison. Psalm 37, verses 7 and 34 are the only two that aren't coupled up with another verse. And you know what they both say? Wait. They like stand alone like, wait, wait, wait. 
like Christmas morning on the steps. Wait, honey, wait, kids, wait. Like crossing the street, wait. Something good, something bad, wait. There's something in the waiting. Something purposed and spiritual and orderly in the waiting. And I don't really like it. There are 12 references to the word will, the auxiliary verb will, in, verse 30, in Psalm 37, and 18 more, I believe, in Psalm 91. The Lord will do, will do, will do, will do, will do. That's the other side of the bridge. Wait for it. Let's move on to Psalm 91. And these are the first, this is the first verse. He who does dwell in the shelter of the Most High, faith, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord over there, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I am present tense living in trust when I say these words. Present tense living in trust, whether my feet are on this piece of solid ground or this precarious bridge or that place of final destination. My rock in whom I trust for those of us who dwell in the shadow of the Most High. Now, Psalm 91 is written in, um, from various voices, points of view. I took a writing class, and they said, never change the voice when you're writing. Stick with I or the omniscient third, you know, third person where you're watching he and she do all of the action. But don't switch over to you and me and he and she, because it's very confusing to the reader. And therefore, Psalm 91 is very confusing to this reader. All right, so here's how it breaks down. In Psalm 91, 1 and, oh, it's supposed to be 1 and 2, sorry, not 1 through 12, 1 and 2. This is like a speaker's testimony, when he, and he's saying, I say to the Lord my refuge, my rock in whom I trust. I say. This is me, the speaker, saying. I'm declaring this. To whomever hears me, it might be back to God, because remember, these psalms are to give glory back to God and instruction to others. So I'm saying this. In the second clump or uh, cluster of psalms, 3 through 13 in Psalm 91, you have an instructive voice, and he is talking to you. There's a you. We call it second person. It says third person on your page because I had to look it up after I made the document you have in your hand because I am an instructed person morning by morning waking up going, that wasn't third person, that was second person. So second person means I am talking to you and I'm declaring it. Your name is in there, my name is in there. You'll see that. He says, you, he, you, he. Third person is when it's an omniscient voice on the outside. And then we get down to the last bit, Psalm 91, 14 through 16, where God himself is speaking. And he says in his voice, I will. One of our... Um, uh, one, one of the books I read, and Connie, for some reason, I can't remember the book that I borrowed from you that I said was so cool. Um, yeah, speaking, speak Lord. Yeah, hearing the voice of the Psalms, and it has an exercise in that book where you rewrite the Psalm in God's voice. So some of the time, it's not in God's voice; it's a declarative voice of a person who's 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 declaring it. It could be a, a voice of people who's who are experiencing something that are being recorded. But if you take those truths and you say. I, God, to you, it's, it's very powerful exercise. I'm not suggesting you translate all of scripture that way, but it's a very powerful exercise in hearing this promise the way God declares it in those last two verses for you. And I have to tell you, I did this for these two um, 
sections of uh, Psalm 37 and, and 91 and several others, and it, it is illuminating. So I would encourage you to um, you know, maybe try that out as we're here in the Psalms. It's very, uh, very helpful. And all of this is good. We can hear it from the, the, the testimony of the people in Psalm. And you can even hear it from the testimony of me on a silly thing like, you know, a trapeze lessons. But that's not where the rubber meets the road. The rubber meets the road when, when you're out of resources or out of health or out of relationship, out of options, out of time, out of material goods. That's when these psalms feel hard and not poetic. Jesus knows that. Open your Bibles to um, John chapter 11. This is a familiar passage. John chapter 11, in my ESV version, has a heading beginning with verse 17. Well, beginning with verse 1, actually. Verse 1 is the death of Lazarus. You know this story, right? There's a lot of weight for it in this story. I just want you to flip over one page backwards into, into chapter 10. Heading of chapter 10 in my Bible says, I am the good shepherd, and if you just jump over to verse 10, very famous verse, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, says Jesus, that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is our declaration, comparing good and evil. I'm for life. And then back over to chapter 11, the death of Lazarus. This is no stranger to Jesus, hardship and loss. And so I'm going to read some excerpts from um, the ESV, many of them. So I'm out of time. I shouldn't read it at all. You read it. I'll point you to a few verses. Chapter 11, verse 4 says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is saying that after he hears that his good friend, Lazarus, is dying. And so he goes along his way, character, uncharacteristically stays two days longer in the place where he was rather than running to the side of his good friend, Lazarus. And then he finds out in verse 11 that Lazarus has died, and in 14 he says to them, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, but for your sake, listen, I'm glad I was not there. I came to give life and give it abundantly. I'm glad I was not there. This is a dilemma. And then he arrives later. Of course, Lazarus is past life and wrapped in, in the tomb. And Jesus says to Martha, um, Martha says to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says to her, but I'm the resurrection and the life. 
whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, future, future, future. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me shall never die, future, future. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world, is coming, future progressive. She calls Mary up, and Jesus says to Mary, Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone, this is verse 40, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And in 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Takes us back to his purpose. That he may be glorified as the Son of God. Jesus had us waiting. It was purposeful. And we can see how our trust and the trust of Mary and Martha grew in relationship, in experience, as eyewitnesses. The trust of the Jews grew as testimony spread and as guidance from the early apostles led them along. That's where we are. Unfortunately, we don't have much of the experience or the eyewitness of the testimony of the risen Christ, but we have the relationship the one who is risen, which is what we celebrate in two weeks, the risen Christ. And what Revelation promises us in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 21, John says, present tense, I hear a loud voice heard, past tense, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now, present tense, among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God, and he be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, or loneliness, or poverty, or sickness, or illness, or cancer, for the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray. Father, trust is hard for us, and you are worthy of it. Open our ears and eyes today that we might grow in that trust, in confidence, in testimony of one another, and your saints who have written it down in the word, and in evidence in our life, and in hope for the future. Bless our time together, Lord, that it might bring glory to you and instruct others. In Jesus' name, amen.